0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host James West and today I'm joined by Keith Wayloo who's the Henry Putnam Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. Keith is the current president of the American Association for the History of Medicine and one of the nation's foremost historians of health policy, including drugs and drug policy, the politics of race and health, and the interplay of identity, ethnicity, gender, and medicine. He's published extensively on these topics, including How Cancer Crossed the Color Line, published in 2011, and his multi-award winning book, Dying in the City of Blues, Sickle Cell Anemia, and the Politics of Race and Health, which was released in 2001. Today we're talking about his new book, Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette, which is available now from the University of Chicago Press. Hi, Keith. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Really excited to talk to you about this book. It's a very timely book and an important book. Um, so we'll just get straight into it. What's the origin of this project?
1: Well, there's a long
2: backstory to my interest in menthol cigarettes
1: that dates to my childhood, growing up in New York City, and then there's the short backstory, which is um, I started teaching about race, drugs, and drug policy in the U.S. primarily about 10 or 15 years ago, Um, and my childhood collided with my academic interests because at the time that I began teaching, the debate was flourishing around whether or not to ban menthol cigarettes, which had become a preferred style of cigarette among African Americans precisely in the time during which I uh, from the time I was born to the um, my early childhood so you might say it it has a little bit of an autobiographical feel to it because I do start the book by reflecting on growing up in New York City in the 1970s but it has an academic focus as well because it's in, I'm interested in the history of race and racialized advertising and health and then of course it has a public policy significance because the FDA has announced uh, earlier last year the decision to ban the menthol cigarette but that decision is still due to be finalized and remains
2: highly contentious so you mentioned then your kind of experience becoming familiar with with menthols can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, how, how prevalent were these type of adverts?
1: Well, in New York City, uh, I grew up in the Bronx and Queens, and of course, Billboard and Street Corner advertising was everywhere. There's some uh, prominent image from uh, Street Corner in Chicago on the cover of the book from the mid-1960s. You could see them inside subways and inside buses. You really couldn't move around your neighborhood or anywhere in the city without seeing these black themed ads, uh, you know featuring black models, really handsome people. You know you'd open up jet magazine or ebony and you'd see those images again. So you know, I grew up with that and then we moved to suburban New Jersey when I was in high school, uh, this kind of leafy green suburb and surprise surprise, there are no billboards there or very, very few. and whatever signage there are aren't really, speaking to uh, black consumers but if you walk just down the road a couple of miles to Newark New Jersey you see those billboards looming again over the horizon and so it's that kind of striking disparity in my upbringing you know the the fact that billboards have a racialized geography at, that set the stage you might say for a set of curiosities uh, and so the book becomes a kind of long history of how that geography of marketing, race, urbanization, and suburbanization unfolded. And what I discovered is the extraordinary intentionality behind this. I mean, it's one thing to speculate about it from the outside. It's another thing to be able to look behind the curtain, as it were, at the tobacco industry records, which became available uh, to begin to study why is it that the signs showed up in exactly a place where they were visible from the apartment buildings that I lived in in Queens? And it turns out there are documents that are specifically about Lefrak City and how many people, you know, from the surrounding community in Queens saw those signs on a daily basis and what the effects were. So um, that's the kind of fascination um, of being
2: able to like revisit your youth from a completely different standpoint. And you mentioned there some of the archival resources that you've used and in particular, the, the TTID, um, this quite remarkable industry archive. And many of our listeners might not be familiar with exactly what that is and, and how exactly these quite damaging documents uh, from the tobacco industry became public.
1: Yeah, a uh, really terrific question
2: because, of course, those archives are really
1: central to the story that can be told. So through the 80s and 90s, there were lots of individualized lawsuits uh, taking on the industry for its marketing tactics, uh, for its targeted marketing, and as is common when There are lawsuits, there is a discovery process. What happened in the course of the late 1990s, however, is that states' attorneys general, attorneys generals from over 20 states, as well as from the Department of Justice, um, took issue with exactly these tactics uh, uh, that were used in marketing cigarettes for a wide range of companies. uh, Mostly because these states were carrying the burden of caring through Medicaid for people who had smoked over decades and were now essentially burdening the state uh, because of the the costs of their healthcare. So as a result in 1998, there was a massive uh, master settlement agreement where seven companies agreed to change the way they marketed tobacco. And because of that, the the settlement also made available millions, uh, 14, 15 millions of documents that were provided to the state's attorneys general that led ultimately to the University of California, San Francisco, scanning all of them and making them available in this, uh, what was first called the Legacy Tobacco Documents Library in uh, 2002, and then the Tobacco Truth Industry Documents, TTID, which houses these internal corporate records which allows you then to see, I mean, I, I was amazed that I could actually search Lefrak City, Queens, New York, uh, billboards, and to see the kind of reporting that were done, uh, the close scrutiny of viewership, visibility, in relationship to a particular billboard that went up, uh, and the effects of this kind of wooing of customers on the securing of markets. So it's this insider's view, uh, a kind of private corporate practices um, that become available through this legally produced archive. And it's really then that you're able to see the, the relentless intentionality, the kind of predatory, you know, cynical set of practices and also, not only that, but the incredibly sometimes, I, I hate to say it, but it's a kind of admirably focused study of black life. So if, if it was any other, other industry, right, if it was a bunch of social scientists, you would, be, you would marvel at the detailed understanding of black social structure, black culture and consciousness to use Lawrence of Levine's book title, you know, the close study of um, influence uh, and political and social influence in neighborhoods. These are the kinds of things that um, you find in these archives, social scientific studies to try to ground and inform the industry's practices. So it's an incredibly rich archive and a rich resource for anyone who wants to. Study really almost any any aspect of of American culture and life. It's just unfortunately through the lens of of an industry that's trying to sell a product that's incredibly detrimental to the health of consumers.
2: Mm, yeah. So I mean, you've already mentioned some of those adverts. You know, Jet and Ebony feature um, quite prominently throughout, and then we'll talk a bit more about those specific magazines um, a bit later. But certainly, by you know late sixties and into the seventies there's this very, very strong connection between um blackness and, and menthols but this this wasn't always the case so you you start your book talking about the early history of menthols where um race doesn't really factor much at all. Can you talk a little bit about that early history and how menthols emerge um during the, the decades following world war one yes the the story is
1: uh, one of you might say multiple kinds of deceit. (laughs) What ultimately becomes a story of uh, targeted racial marketing started in the 1920s as a promise, uh, a deceitful promise that menthol brands offered smokers of health. The mentholated products were widely part of consumer culture in the 19-teens and 1920s, and the argument for menthol, the claim for menthol products was that, you know, we all know that distinctive feeling of biting into a mentholated, you know, York peppermint patty, you know, the rush of coolness that bathes the throat. And menthol products claimed that they were widening the airways uh, or that they were therapeutic in some way. When in fact, what menthol actually does is it deceives the senses into feeling coolness. There is no change in temperature of the throat and there is no widening of the airways. In fact, uh, last year, the Nobel Prize was awarded to a scientist who studies the way in which menthol and other products like um, peppers trick the senses. So hot and cold are sensed, but aren't really um, experienced. Their experience is hot and cold, but there's no change in temperature. So mentholated products came into the market promising better health. And uh, in the mid-1920s, one inventor, a guy named Spud Hughes, decided to mingle Menthol with cigarettes, partly because, uh, and this is the market that menthols occupied. When he had colds or when he had a raspy throat or his throat was irritated from the, his regular cigarettes, he wanted relief. And the mentholated cigarette that he first made became popular, became the first brand called Spud. And that led to the brand that we know today called Cool being marketed in the 1930s. But the menthol cigarette had this niche appeal. As a therapeutic cigarette, a cigarette for you know when your throat was parched from your regular smoke, turn to a spud, turn to a cool. And so some of the early ads uh, featuring Willie the Penguin, the mascot for Cool, would say things like, you know, if autumn flowers make you sneeze, then smoke this smoother brand of Cool will please. And so there is um, this kind of therapeutic. Argument that underpins Cool in the early years, and it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with gender, which is another appealing feature of Cool advertising. It had everything to do with this false therapeutic promise of relief and easing uh, one's discomfort, and uh, it's and that's the way Cools marketed themselves and other menthol products through. The 1950s, uh, it's really the 1960s where you begin to see this uh, really disturbing, but also uh, extraordinary pivot in the industry's strategy, the racialization of menthol menthol cigarette smoking.
2: Yeah, and... You know, even as late as 1963, very few people in the tobacco industry are really associating menthol smoking with black Americans. So what are some of the factors that influence this really quite rapid shift? Uh,
1: I would say there are a couple of things that drive this shift, particularly around 1964. Uh, it's really quite stunning. And, and you're quite right to say that if you had asked an industry executive in 1961 when a new menthol war had broken out in the 50s, where a new brand called Salem had shown up and it skyrocketed to popularity. Uh, And then Cool was coming back and trying to kind of aggressively market with its come up to cool uh, advertising campaign, all on this new medium called television. And if you'd asked industry executives in 1961 or 62, if there was a racial preference, African-American preference for menthol smoking, they would have looked at you Quizzically, and, and they would have said, like, what possibly does race have to do with mentholated smoking? It, there was really no correlation. In fact, one of the studies I came across in 1961 said, you know, African Americans actually don't like mentholated smoking at all. And so the factors that drove this have to do with the the fact that the advertising, the aggressive advertising with like television jingles, woo the penguin as the mascot, comic books um, or comic advertisements that uh, were, were seen by many regulators and many skeptics in Congress as appealing to children. And the industry had spent a great deal of time wooing college students as well. I mean, college newspaper advertising was really the leading edge of the tobacco advertising in the 50s and early 1960s at black colleges as well as white colleges. But there begins in the 1960s an aggressive push by regulators to roll back the industry's outreach to youth smokers. And, you know, sensing that limitation the industry starts to look for new growth markets. So there's a kind of a push and pull of regulation in my story where as certain kinds of markets close, the industry seeks other markets. Uh, I should say one other thing that sets the context, which is the discovery and the uh, new epidemiological studies showing the linkages between smoking and cancer. Some of the first studies come out in the 1950s and the industry begins to be very sensitive to the need to present smoking as safer. And as a result, menthol sales skyrocket in the 1950s alongside filtered cigarettes. So menthols now have acquired a, a kind of image as the safe cigarette for people who are anxious About the possibility, right? Because it was still a kind of a debated question the linkage between smoking and cancer. So, these forces, the constraints around children advertising to youth, the rising tide of concern around cancer, and then the urbanization of African Americans, right? In the context of the Great Migration and the Changing Demographics of Cities convinces a company like Brown and Williamson that the African-American market is a waiting market uh, for menthol sales. And the early 1964, you have the Surgeon General's report that produces what the industry calls the second cancer scare. Uh, that suddenly also begins to shift people towards looking for uh, what they perceive to be a safe cigarette. So all of these things are going on simultaneously. Demographic change, regulatory change, health transformations, and the industry studies every single one of these factors closely to try to understand how it's shaping anxiety and People search for a, quote, safe cigarette. And in the 1960s, and particularly 1964, um, in the summer of 1964, when the Civil Rights Act, you know, is being debated and passed, Brown and Williamson launches this practice, this strategy of advertising in black periodicals, black newspapers around the country. Uh, You'll see that signature waterfall motif and uh, the cool campaign comes to Black America in a very, very aggressive way uh, in July, August, and September of 1964. And so that pivot begins a relationship between the industry and Black media, which sees these advertisements as a source of revenue.
2: This relationship between the Black press and, and tobacco advertisers, but then also Black civic organizations, you do a really good job in your book of laying out exactly what the benefits on both sides of this relationship are. So why does this relationship become so strong to the extent that, you know, later on, black publishers are are actively defending the industry from its critics?
1: Uh, yeah, wonderful question. And I must say that this was... <laughs> Huh. You know, you, you delve into a project, and uh, that kind of question was a driving one for me. And the answers um, are kind of uh, difficult to describe. In the early years, I would say, the affinity revolves in part around the politics of representation and respect. So for instance, when the Congress on Racial Equality representatives meet with representatives of Brown and Williamson in a hotel room in New York City in the early 1960s, they are calling for the industry to represent African-Americans more prominently on television or in media. So there's a sense that if if you want black folks to buy your product, you have to show black folks using your product. And so there's a fair bit in the 1960s, early 60s, uh, of kind of a politics of you know, representation and respect, which segues also for the media into a politics of, well, uh, the economics, right? Of revenue, of advertising revenue being central to the sustenance of these, these outlets. So a good example is John uh, Johnson, the publisher, founding publisher of Ebony. He had a kind of theory of African-Americans in segregated society being driven by a desire for what he called compensatory gratification. The idea that you know when you're closed out of um, segregated institutions, when you are restricted from other avenues of conspicuous consumption, that consumption in black communities that are segregated and stigmatized uh, takes particular forms of buying sometimes um, brand name products that signal status. And so a lot of what the logic of these industries revolved around, the advertising industry was promising status, right? And people like John Johnson were comfortable being the the media that projected these ideas about Black identity, modern Black identity. On the other hand, you know, what that led to were these perverse blind spots with regard to tobacco. So where, at the same time, organizations like Reader's Digest were calling out the tobacco industry, right, advertising, calling for greater restrictions, and horrified by the increasing evidence that smoking caused cancer you have somebody like john johnson in ebony you know when when nat king cole for instance died right hugely popular black entertainer died in 1965 relentless smoker when he passed away and having suffered for several months with lung cancer they covered his lung cancer diagnosis very very carefully they covered his death extraordinarily carefully. Uh, they praised him for his work in civil rights, but when he died of lung cancer, in the issue where his death was commemorated, uh, they talked about a lot of things, but they never mentioned his smoking once. And in that same issue, there are four menthol ads, one for Montclair, one for Salem, one for Newport, and one for Cool. Uh, with that signature couple you know, lingering joyfully near the outdoor pool. So that just gives you a sense of the, the ironies, the deep ironies that even one organization was kind of sucked into the vortex of uh, the tobacco industry's uh, appeal to African-Americans and, and participated in that, um, that appeal, much to the detriment of black smokers.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: So one area where you see this big increase in in menthol representation is is in the black press. And then another big area is billboards. Why does this shift to billboards happen? And how does that disproportionately affect African-American communities?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question because it, it recycles, it brings us back to the perverse byproduct of uneven regulation because what happens in the late 60s in the national political scene is an increasing concern with radio and television advertising by the tobacco industry selling a product that has these profoundly detrimental effects on the health of the public and particularly a lot of the concern was about children. And that leads in the early 70s to a television and radio ad ban. And one of the unfortunate byproducts of banning advertising of tobacco on television and radio is that the industry, and this is what you can track inside the industry, begins to understand that it needs to move closer and closer to the point of purchase And so while billboards had been used previously, if you lose the capacity to do mass marketing through television and radio, uh, you are going to redouble your efforts through targeted marketing. And this is where the urban billboard becomes particularly important. And so the billboard discussion that I was able to track in the preface to my book um, about the neighborhoods in which I grew up are in some ways, um, they come from that specific chapter in Menthal's history, the period during which the urban billboard with, a, with, with close focus group analysis as to who is seeing the billboard, the powers of recall, what people remember, and how it informs brand choice. Uh, so they study things like the, the relative efficacy of a highway billboard, the relative efficacy of a bus billboard, the impact of a point of purchase billboard, which is actually seen as most effective at driving purchase and sale choices. And it also produces some incredibly disturbing uh, studies. For instance, um, I came across a study in Pittsburgh in which the advertising firm explains that given the fact that whites and blacks regard the images of black folks smoking menthols differently, and there's still a a fairly large white market for menthol cigarettes as well, that given that fact and given the transformations in suburbanization and the kind of geography of race, that one needs to think very carefully about where you advertise on a bus and what routes you advertise on. And one of the arguments that's made in this document is that on buses that move black folks from suburban black communities into the city to work for commuter purposes, it's okay to advertise on the inside of the bus when the ridership is majority black. But if those buses move through white neighborhoods on their route, one should not advertise menthol cigarettes with a black motif on the outside of the bus. And this is specific to a place like Pittsburgh, whereas in Boston or Washington, D.C., or Chicago, other rules apply. So it's this level of, it's not just the billboards, it's also a level of intense focus on where Black folks live and also an intense focus on the kinds of attitudes that prevail in those communities that are likely therefore to influence smoking and brand preference. And and I, I should say one other thing is that the industry also studied things like shifts in political attitudes towards race from the 60s to the 1970s. So one of the things they were saying in the 60s is that the desire of white youth to emulate Black style and Black music and Black culture meant that the a, a greater public association, a public advertising of Black people smoking menthols could also rebound to the benefit of white, you know, more white consumers smoking the product. Whereas as political attitudes shifted in the 1970s and 1980s, let's say driven by anxieties or animosity towards new practices like school busing for racial integration, that one had to be very careful about those messages a scene in in white communities. So the industry is not just kind of thinking about billboards, it's thinking about billboards, location, suburban, urban commuter
2: patterns, as well as shifting racial attitudes. The examples you gave there give us a real insight into just the level of detail. That the tobacco industry goes into, in your fourth chapter, you have this great section when you talk about at the very same time that universities are developing the field of African American studies, Black studies, firms were developing their corporate style of what you call race studies. Did it surprise you the level or the extent to which the tobacco industry would go to do these quite remarkable social science reports, um, behavioral studies? When when you were looking through the documents.
1: I think surprise is an understatement. Um, I I have to say that the level of detailed study of Black psychology, Black communities, Black social structure, shifting racial attitudes, you know, when I would come across some of these documents, I really would have to marvel at them. And sometimes I'd have to get up from my seat and walk around. I, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing because it is, as you pointed out, um, a kind of corporate version of black studies in the 1960s and 1970s. They're drawing heavily on social science scholarship, they're drawing heavily on detailed focus groups they're drawing heavily on sociological analysis. Or sort of, there's a document from 19, late 1960s St. Louis that I find particularly uh, revealing. It's a study that that explains that uh, African American young men don't get authoritative information from television or from radio, but actually from people who are authoritative in the neighborhood, on the street. It could be a barber, it could be a bellhop, it could be a taxi driver, it could be a numbers runner. And so what this study suggests is that the way to actually influence behavior in a broader sense in the Black community, in Black St. Louis, is to find these individuals of influence. Uh, They call them kingfish and give them what they call boast material. Um, that is to say free product, uh, free cigarettes to hand out. And this is the way in which influence is created. It's kind of, it's pushing, it's, it's, it's you know, what you would understand to be, you know, it, when I was growing up, like this is how drug pushers worked. But it is for them. They also highlighted that it has to be done secretively. They literally use the word "secretive," because if there's any sense that people are being manipulated, um, this would undercut the entire enterprise. And so, when you read a document like that, you know there's you can't just read it and put it aside and move on. You have to sit and ponder it and try to understand. The, the, the depth of manipulation. The industry uses the term exploitation to describe its own practices. Uh, in fact, some of the language of these documents is uh, itself, I think, some of the most damning you know material in the archive is the actual documents themselves, just reading them, uh, quite stunning. And that's just one of, of many, many that I've come across that are in the book.
2: And then... The extent to which this is aided, this kind of increasingly intrusive presence into Black urban life is aided by the silence, the complicity of Black press, of Black civic organisations. I mean, in the book, you you are quite critical of these institutions and these publications, but then also we do get a very clear sense that in some ways this is the relationship of necessity. So what kind of factors are influencing black press uh, black civic organizations to continue to defend and collaborate with the tobacco industry
1: yeah i would say that there are a couple of different factors the um the the fiscal challenges faced by cities is a big part of it so when uh the industry comes up with a jazz festival to enliven urban civic life and it brings really famous jazz figures uh, for a multi-city tour in the early 1980s. It's hard to not understand that, you know, what the industry thought that it was doing and was doing is a celebration of Black culture uh, and Black entertainment and creating kind of community at a time when cities were ailing fiscally and when you have a kind of new conservative administration that is not focused on on the the life uh, and the economic well-being of increasingly african american cities so there is a kind of a partnership that flourishes between the nation- the NAACP and the uh, United Negro College Fund. And what I argue is that, you know, it's kind of like in an age of deindustrialization when industries leave the city and jobs leave the city, the tobacco industry stays behind. And it is a, it's a kind of a Faustian bargain. Uh, by the early 1980s, there are many who are commenting on it. And usually they're increasingly people from the health world, from the world of public health. Who see the long term detrimental impact? Uh, so there are people like uh, I quote in the book a spokesperson for the American Lung Association, an African American woman who is asked, "How do you understand this as a kind of a story of black um, tobacco and what I, you know? What is obviously a story of, as I tell it, racial capitalism? The kind of ironies and trade-offs of racial capitalism and their enticement of black communities into this deadly strain. And she tells the story in the 1980s. She says, it's kind of like if you know, a black family is driving a car and they have a terrible accident and the car turns over. And this is her quote. And she says, and the wife and the children are pinned in the car. But then another car drives up with the promise of help. The only thing is that it's, the, it's a KKK pickup truck, she says and the KKK rescues the family. And the father is very thankful to the KKK. And this is what she tells in order to kind of capture the ironies of this moment. But it's also the 1980s, you start to see a pivot. You start to see a kind of tension emerging within black communities about the cruel logic, that is increasing the presence of billboards within view of Black kids and really contributing to the decline um, of health and well-being in Black communities. I mean, ultimately, the NAACP does change its course and its affiliations with the industry, but only in the last couple of years. The really dramatic change that happens in the 1980s is... On the one hand, public health officials begin to take a harshly critical view of the logic. And then, you know, what I particularly find fascinating in the book is the emergence of anti-billboard vigilantism. There's this fascinating individual named Henry McNeil Brown in Chicago. But others, like journalists like uh, Clarence Page and others who begin to comment on the kind of the ironies. What Brown does in Chicago is he calls himself Mandrake, and he basically uh, whitewashes and blackwashes billboards at uh, night—billboards that have tobacco or alcohol advertisements—in black neighborhoods. Uh, And it's a practice that's emulated in the late 1980s and other cities as well, and also in the early 1990s. And this kind of local activism, mixed with the with the public health critique, begins to gain steam in the 1980s and
2: 1990s. Your chapter five, we have this really great case study of this showdown, if you like, between that increasing criticism from a public health perspective, and that's embodied in Lewis Sullivan, who's Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Bush administration. And then on the other side, people like Benjamin Hooks, who's at that time head of the NAACP. And this is organized around this specific campaign, this uptown campaign. Why does this campaign prove so um, controversial and, and why is it such a great window into debates around race and menthol yeah the uptown
1: campaign is uh is a really important turning point in this story and uh it it emerges out of rj reynolds and and you know one of the interesting sub themes and actually it's a dominant theme in the story is the way in which the intensity of competition across these companies drives the intensification of the ment- the racialization of menthol so it's not just one company it's the idea that everyone recognizes that if black folks are a quote growth market or if poverty markets are new growth markets then everyone should be involved in winning black smokers so there's an intensity and in the late 1980s 18, 1989 R.J. Reynolds decides that it's going to launch a specific brand called Uptown. They're going to test market it in black Philadelphia, and they're going to make an explicit claim that has always been implicit but widely understood, which is they're going to say, by now, the story becomes that of African-American smokers, a significant majority prefer menthol-style cigarettes, right? So whereas only 30% of white smokers smoke menthols, Eighty percent of black smokers smoke menthols, and this is the kind of byproduct of the transformation you've seen in the '60s and '70s. So what they say is, well, we're going to come up with a a menthol brand that just says it's for black folks, Um, and we're not going to make any apologies about it. And if they, they argue that if Nike can say this is a sneaker for black young people, why can't we say that Uptown is for black folks? And you know, of course they don't acknowledge the obvious differences between the fact that nobody's ever died you know, wearing a Nike sneaker. Um, but uh, what, what this results in is a tongue lashing and a kind of public campaign, not from the NAACP, because of course they support these kinds of initiatives at the time. But it is Louis Sullivan, who is the Secretary for Health Human Services in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. So a uh, Republican administration that is business-friendly, has uh, African-American, uh, a African-American, a physician and former a founding dean at Morehouse in the medical school there. And Sullivan, it gives you a sense of how much the medical and public health world had pivoted, comes out and calls out the Uptown campaign as slick and sinister and detrimental to the health. And in fact, when he's asked uh, at one point about Henry McNeil Brown, he actually praises this kind of activity um, of like pushing back aggressively against the industry. And it's Benjamin Hooks who is called upon by the industry to defend uh, the industry's right to advertise in the name of free speech, but also making a kind of an argument about racism, basically arguing that the idea that black folks can't make decisions for themselves, that you know if black people can't determine their own destiny, whatever the product is itself paternalistic and racist. So you have this incredibly Um, intense debate over who is speaking for African Americans, whether it's, you know, the black physician who works in a Republican administration, or the executive director of the NAACP. Uh, And, you know, actually, Louis Sullivan wins that fight. That is to say, (laughs) RGR can't really handle the intensity of the criticism Uh, and they pull the campaign, but it really sets in motion a wave of local activism, both in Philadelphia, that moves to other cities, that ultimately leads to new regulations, but also emboldens those state campaigns that I described, Uh, that is to say, the attorneys generals bringing lawsuits against uh, the tobacco industry. That's already going on in the 1990s. And so by the time that settlement is made in 1998 one of the things that is happens in those settlements are that billboards are banned and you need to really trace that to the long standing critique of billboards that go all the way back to mandrake Uh, that are part of the, the story of Uptown as well. So it is a fascinating and important pivot. There's a lot more that happens in the wake of Uptown, but that in a nutshell is the crucial dynamic that begins to turn the tide and lead to the increasing conversation about the need to ban menthol cigarettes precisely because of these kinds of tactics over multiple,
2: multiple decades. And then, you know, in the conclusion of your book, you trace what, what you describe as uptowns, aftertaste, and situate the still ongoing debates around menthol cigarettes um, within the context of, of Black Lives Matter, or of the COVID-19 pandemic, reasserting just how important these debates are.
1: You know, we we're at an important um, a fork in the road. Uh, back in 2009, when President Obama actually signed the first piece of legislation that gave the FDA jurisdiction over tobacco products. Can you believe that? Like, over the course of the 20th century, the FDA never had jurisdiction over cigarettes or any tobacco products. That legislation banned all flavored cigarettes except menthols. And the reason was because of this continuing split, whereas some significant and powerful members of the Congressional Black Caucus insisted Uh, that menthol should not be banned, but punted the issue to the FDA. So the FDA has been kind of making uh, sitting on this decision really since 2009, and in some ways has tried to ban menthol several times. This is easily the third time that this has come along. So you asked though about the the context of Black Lives Matter. So the the debate this year, the last two years about banning menthol cigarettes has hinged on, on the one hand, concerns about this longstanding predatory behavior uh, and the racialization of, and the targeted marketing of menthol cigarettes. But increasingly, and not surprisingly, given what I've described about black uh, civic figures coming to the industry's defense, uh, individuals like Al Sharpton have been taking money from the industry, but at the same time defending uh, the industry's not their right to advertise or the right to sell menthols, but what he argues is that would be the detrimental impact of banning menthols. Uh, and he argues that there would be more. Eric Garner's or George Floyd's, you know, people being surveilled by police for using menthol cigarettes. So obviously this is not the case because the ban would be on the ban of sales of cigarettes, not the ban on using cigarettes. So as I was finishing the book, you know, this discussion, right, about not only who speaks for Black lives, but Black Lives Matter emerges. And as I'm finishing the book, George Floyd's murder shocks the world, strangled by a Minneapolis policeman outside a store that was known for selling menthol cigarettes in the city, uh, according to a quote in the New York Times. And so, what I came to understand, and what I write about in the conclusion, is that there are, in some ways, kind of three tragedies that are characteristic of our time. There is the death of by a policeman and giving rise to that uh, phrase "I can't breathe," Eric Garner. George Floyd. There is, of course, the year of COVID, uh, which is also disproportionately ending uh, the lives of Black folks with the same kind of cry, I can't breathe, because of the the devastating impact of the coronavirus on the lungs. And then there is also the long-term effect of menthol and cigarette smoking on the lungs, decimating the lungs, ending too many lives in the same plea, I can't breathe. And so what I wanted to do in the conclusion is to capture that all of these are products of systemic challenges that have unfolded over different timescales. In the case of Mr. Floyd, you know, minutes. In the case of COVID, weeks. But in the case of menthol, and this is what makes it hard to focus on, this unfolds over years and over decades, but they all reach a same tragic point of conclusion. And and so what I reflect on is who the agents are that are producing these disparities. Um, And what the story of menthol highlights is that the damage is done by the market, by a form of predatory racial capitalism, and over also with which buys these kinds of supporters and influencers to maintain the web of menthol around the city. Uh, it's also supported by the unevenness of regulation. And so in some ways, I think that you know, menthol entered the market with a deceitful promise that it could relieve, that it could soothe, and it could open the airways but really, it's an illegitimate enticement, and in the long run, right? It has produced a kind quite the opposite <laughs> that uh, it has constrained the ability of people to breathe. It has uh, disproportionately harmed the health and well-being of Black folks, and so that's why I end the book by reflecting on the these different timescales uh, and why the final chapter is called the long road to I Can't Breathe, uh, because it ultimately is a book about how this market has been built and how it's been sustained for so long and why I end up arguing on the basis of the history, it's time for this product to cease
2: being sold in the United States. Yeah, that's a really powerful point to end on. Just quickly before we go, I know our listeners are always interested in what might be coming next in terms of New research projects, new interests. Um, I wondered if you have a project that you're working on right now, or you might be able to preview something you might be working on that'll be coming out in the, the next couple of years for our listeners.
1: I usually juggle lots of different projects. I have a long standing interest in the history of um, addiction. My main focus often is on issues of African American health and well being. I've never written a book that's focused primarily on um, the 19th century or uh, in the antebellum period, but I did come across a a fascinating case of an enslaved girl in antebellum Tennessee who was also entrusted or at least charged with being a nurse uh, to an infant uh, who was the child of her owner. Uh, and that child died under her care. And it is a story of drugs. It's a story of race and racial blame. It's the story of slavery and law. And it happens right at the cusp of the Civil War and emancipation. And so I've kind of been drawn into this, this medical legal drama Uh, mostly because of just how interesting the story is. But ultimately, it is a story about opium, about laudanum, and about the therapeutic dilemmas of being a caregiver in the context of slavery. So it's a very different project than what I've been working on (laughs) up to date. But, um, you know, often I, I spend a lot of time thinking about whether a book whether a project can sustain a book and I'm still early in deciding on whether this project
2: can actually produce something that's book length. I mean that sounds completely fascinating uh you know whatever format it ends up becoming I'm I'm really interested to excited to hear more about that. Keith just want to thank you so much for taking the time today it's been great to talk to you. James thank you so much for the opportunity it's been
1: a wonderful conversation.